You're listening to Yale Radio WYBC. This is Brainerd Carey with the lives of the artists, architects, curators, and more. Today on our show, I'm talking with Montana Ray. Montana, thanks so much for being with me today. Oh my goodness, thank you so much for having me. I'm really delighted to be here. Montana, I'm excited to talk about your, your work, and I know you're going to read some, some older poems, but also we're talking about um, new writing. What, what are you working on at the moment? What's, what's happening in your, in your sphere at this unusual time? We're talking on November 4th. I mean, I guess they're all unusual times, I say, at the beginning of these interviews. But we've, we're, we're just sort of emerging from the pandemic, it seems. And um, uh, so, yeah, what are you working on in this, in this unusual context? Right. So I'm working on right now a rather roving project, even though I'm mostly stuck at home in my office um, during these times. I'm working on a nonfiction book that kind of explores the connection between the South, in quotes, like U.S. South, and Central and South America. And I do that through genealogies, as well as monuments and cultural performances. Um, And it's it's somewhat based in where my family has lived or has entanglements of various kinds, but it kind of leans away from memoir and looks more at kind of, well, really art and, and kind of cultural performances. So that is, that's the current project, and it's called To Thicken It. So let's talk a little bit about more of that, cultural performances. Um, can, can we talk about a few examples from there, these connections? Because yeah, that's, sure, sure. that's a so fascinating first, kind of bridge to make. The first one is set in... Um, a graveyard in Sao Paulo. It's a Confederate graveyard, and it's set during a, the Festa Confederada, which is a celebration by descendants of people who migrated um, following the Civil War in the U.S. to Brazil so they could continue enslaving people and, you know, practicing their way of, of agricultural capitalism. And so, you know, Brazil had uh, – slavery was legal in Brazil until 1888, Meanwhile, also the Brazilian government was kind of seducing white people to the country in, the, in a program called Brancamento. And so there's now, contempor- in the contemporary Americana is the name of the city, um, they're a group of Bolsonaro supporters who dress up in antebellum, kind of <laughs> just, uh, you know, gone with the wind they, is a big reference for these people. And they dance around. And there's bikers and there's Freemasons and so I went to this festival. So so so, so, so that I, is that is a cultural performance. That's what that that's what is a cultural performance. Is that correct? That is an example of a cultural performance I look mm-hmm. at, but I also look at okay. So as part of this um, festa, it actually intersects with some of my own research into avant-garde art, artwork. And uh, for example, Hita Lee, who's a pretty central figure in Brazilian culture and was uh, kind of a luminary as part of the Tropicalia movement with Gilberto Gio and Cardinal Veloso. So she's a descendant of, the, of this migration, and, so, and she writes about it in her memoir. Um, so I'm exploring the kind of co- her cultural performances of quintessential Brazilian culture and Brazilian music alongside this sort of genealogy of hers and mine. My family is, was also a part of this migration. So it's cultural performances on the kind of folkloric quote-unquote, which is what the, the dances are referred to in the program at the Festa Confederada, these antebellum dances, and then on this sort of avant-garde cultural performances from Tropicalia. So there's a lot of research involving this, right? It seems uh, like... There's you, a lot of research, yes. But, I mean, that's my thing. I've been like... I've just, I, I, work, I just finished the um, 
PhD, and the people I was I was studying with were Brent Edwards and Sadia Hartman, and so at Columbia, and so they're kind of models of archival scholarship and you know what's possible in the archive and the kind of imaginative leaps you can take there, but also the ways we can care for people or hold people account accountable through the archive are really important to me. And then also, like personally, I just feel like every time I go to an archive, I see people working on family history projects in some way or digging up family secrets in some way. So this is also, and I, I have never done that because I'd approached it more from a, a scholarly perspective, but this is actually the first time that I was thinking about family genealogy as well, this book. So yes, a lot of research, but I'm really into it, <laughs> nerdily so. That's fascinating. Yeah, I, I love talking about that and, and um, that kind of research because it does seem, as you said, like it can reveal family secrets, but also these these secret histories or or histories we don't we don't hear about. I was I was fascinated to read something. It was at the Yale Art Gallery, I think it was. A, I, I should know the names of all this, but it was an old painting, um, and and uh, probably from the 1700s of a family. And you see this this uh, young boy in it who has a collar on his neck, he's a black slave and, um, for, for the family. And they were, they were trying to research this and figure out, um, as part of contextualizing this painting, who is that boy? And, yeah. um, and, 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 and I thought this was such a fascinating story, but they never found out who the boy was. And I thought, you know... Um, yes, they haven't these, found these, out yet. But. Right, they haven't found out yet. But these are the kind of things that, that can be revealed, right, that are sort of like... Um, uh, I, I, don't, I don't know how to phrase it, but they're, they're, they're sort of uh, kind of seismic kind of discoveries that can, that can make us revise history or look at it in a, in a com through a completely different lens. Yes, I'm glad you share my enthusiasm for the excitement of the, the archive, quote-unquote. Yes, yes. <laughs> so um, so let's, we'll talk a little bit more about the archive, but I'd love to hear one of your poems. I know you're going to read a few. Um, oh, what's sure. the first okay. one you're, you're oh. going to read? So as I have, I mean, these are older poems. They're from my book, Guns and Butter. I really, I mean, really have been in the archives for the past six years or seven years during this PhD, so I haven't been writing a lot of poetry, but here is, I'll read two. And these are in the shape of, um, of guns. They're concrete poems in the shape of, of, of guns. So the first one is called United States of Montana. Men live in Montana where air is healthful, men go. To Colorado, near Montana, in the mountains, sick men go on hot afternoons. Men work in factories, and Kansas is in the newspapers, talked of by men. Idaho, thou hast, and far away, Singapore, Honolulu, Brazil, Alabama. In Montana, men eat and have bodies which pain them. Kansas has two men pained by their eating. The stomach of man, a weak affair. Men work, suffer, are a little ugly. Mountains are in Montana, and the afternoon is strange, haunting, awful. Hear the buzzing in the hot grass coming from the live things. So that's one. And then... Thank you. Sure. The other one I'm going to read is another poem from the same book. This one is called um, Customs Motherfuckers. Holding my passport, the officer says, nice. Nice like a gun show, I think. He means I've lost weight. You've lost a lot of weight, he says. But that baby, must be he looks like daddy. Where is daddy? In D.C., huh? Is he a politician? I dig in my bag, diapers, contraband crackers, a toy giraffe, 
for my license, thinking, well, here's a rum cake family anecdote, like when Aunt Mary told the cops a flasher had flashed her their first question, well, and what were you wearing? Okay. So I stand on an anti-cop poem still <laughs> in this moment. So, yes. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, so, yeah, let's, let's, let's talk a little bit more. So those were, both poems were from Guns and Butter. Um, that's right. An older yeah. book of, of concrete poetry. It's kind of nice to, or, or interesting to try to imagine, you know, um, the shape of what you're reading, because, of course, that's, that's one thing that doesn't translate in, in reading, right? Concrete poetry has, is, is, of course, visual. That's right. Yeah. No, and I think, no, you're right. Like, it is a really different experience to encounter them on the page. And um, so... I don't know if we can connect that, you know, the, the, the work you're doing, you know, as a, as a poet or have done as a poet and, and what you're doing now, which is um, this, yeah. this research and, um, and even with, which I'm fascinated with you, you, you also did research into and, Anna Mendieta a while ago. Um, you know, as a, as, a, as a poet, translator, researcher, all of these things come together in, in, in a sense in your, in your work, don't they? And as you said, the kind of nerdy work. But it's also, uh, um, uh, you know, has, has the overtone of poetry, right? Because you're an artist coming at this. You're not, a, you're not kind of a, just a purely nerdy academic, right? It's very porous. And actually, it's funny. I mean, the concrete poetry that I'm writing is really influenced by the concrete poets in Brazil. Um, so that was the first example of concrete poetry that I was ever taught by Monica de la Torre. Um, and so basically I, I'm really moved by that work, but on the same time philosophically anthropophagia was, was basically um, came out of Brazilian modernism and it was a, project of cultural cannibalism where kind of white elite, elite Brazilians would pretend to be Tupi and cannibalize um, North American and, and European art in the production of Brazilian subject matter. And so in, in the 70s, the concrete poets took that idea and made it into a translation pl platform. So basically, Araldo de Campos was interested in consuming all of these literatures from different places to fortify and strengthen Brazilian arts and culture and I mean to me now I had I had such a I wanted to critique that work for so long even though it was so important to me visually you know aesthetically and right now I'm actually working on a, um, a translation project with um, Yuri Cruz who's an artist in Brazil who is really in, interested in kind of anthropophagia critiques it um, you know critiques the kind of uh, appropriation and well, really caricature of indigenous culture and the appropriation of black culture that went along with that movement, but also kind of revitalizes this notion of artistic nourishment and his work, Prestophagia, is about kind of consuming black text and a young, young artist consuming the work of elders in, um, to kind of nourish his own artistic practice. So we've been spending the summer just kind of chatting online um, about various black feminisms that he's influenced by and it's been a really amazing time so yes I think that it is very much of a piece where that that kind of wrestling with an academic idea for a long time does lead to exciting creative collaborations 
you know, once in a while, hopefully more often <laughs> now that I'm out of the PhD. <laughs> yeah. Right, right. And so let's talk about some of those collaborations, some of the things that just to, just to revisit um, how we began, the, the book you're working on that, that in a sense um, has some of what we're talking about and in, in, in even your approach to writing folded into it. Um, what, are, what are some especially interesting discoveries you've made in your, in your research? You know, okay, um, so many. I mean, I feel like one thing that I'm pretty excited to write about next would be, so I had written about this translation that Anamandieta makes called um, La Venus Negra based on a Cuban legend. And I found out that the original that she's translating, it's a, it's a literary translation, and she published it in a magazine called Heresies. Anamandieta published it, translated and published it, you're saying? Yeah, exactly. In this, in Heresies, the feminist press, um, in, in the, it's 1981. And she's an editor. She's on, the, she's on the kind of working with this mother collective to publish this piece. And basically, I found out that the original, the original legend was kind of this piece that was constructed by a cohort of, American and Cuban sort of sugar tycoons in Cienfuegos in like 1919 to sort of celebrate the centenary of of this the the city and so it's basically the actual story is about a black woman who um, she's a beautiful nude black woman who it's it's in the the kind of colonial voice is described in this kind of lewd way. And ultimately, she's dispossessed of her small island, Cayo Loco. So Ana Mendieta makes this woman, in her translation, a descendant of the Siboney, which is already a pretty wild act. Um, and I write about that in my dissertation. But then when I went there to Cienfuegos, I saw these, um, these images of women who were performing the legend in the 1980s and often kind of to kind of cultural tours that were coming through Cienfuegos. And so they were you know, these beautiful, it was kind of like um, black beauty queens. There was a contest that people would kind of be picked to play this this character. And it was, I was really interested in the way that they kind of used these symbols of black power um, to recreate this centenary white nationalist um, legend. So what I'm really wanting to do next is to go and interview the women who played the part of La Venus Negra in the 1980s. Um, and that's kind of my next, my next, I, what I'd like to do, and it just it also kind of maps onto my my mom was really interested in the in Cuba in the 1980s, and like my picture, my baby pictures are me at like Sandinista rallies and stuff when I was like, <laughs> so I feel like I'm I'm just curious about her, and she passed away when I was very little, and so I'm kind of I would like to go and sort of have it be like a palimpsest of itineraries where I'm sort of thinking about Ana Mendieta, but also thinking about my mom and then interviewing these women to find out kind of the real story in, in some ways. So I don't know that it's like a, I don't, that, that was an exciting discovery, but it's also, it doesn't, it doesn't seem like, um, I don't know. It doesn't seem finished yet. Do you know what I mean? Like was, I would, I would, mm. I would like to know more, I think, which is perhaps one of the, when you discover something exciting is when you know you want to learn more about it, right? That there's some a really exciting history and stories there. 
Yes, and it strikes me as also very, very personal, you know, um, kind of personal exploration in some ways. That's, that's also part of it, although, you know, I, I could be wrong there, but it seems, you know, when I talk to um, different, different types of writers, right, uh, one person told me that in, in fiction you kind of, reading fiction, you sort of find your, yourself in some way, you know, um, and poetry is something else, but in, in nonfiction and in this kind of research, especially what you're doing and how it, how it relates to family and this kind of digging through through texts and, and the past, it's also uh, somehow very personal, somehow also about perhaps um, Absolutely. finding no. yourself, or, or is that a stretch? Yeah. No, I think that it's, I really do think it's really personal. And I mean, it's also, you know, I think what I realized there when I was, I was researching Ana Mendieta's genealogy. And so I went to her family's museum in Cardenas, which is this like, strange heterotopia of like the things of the rich like these like lances from the you know 14th century and paintings of royalty and carriage cards mixed with these like exhibitions of indigenous quote-unquote culture like a shrunken head and abakur costumes and it's you know it's pretty it's pretty clear to me like her kind of background and then that really it is really personal because to me I kept thinking oh she grew up in this place that's like not entirely different from my mom's growing up in this sort of segregated, um, you know, Mountain Brook, the most segregated part of, of Birmingham, Alabama, and, like, the way in which, I don't know, just her family history and my, mom, and my mom's girlhood and thinking of those two things together. Yes, of course it's personal. And I just, I feel like that's the, and it's also, it's also not. It's also, you know, somebody else's life. Um, but I think, I mean, this is also maybe a throwaway comment, but I do feel like with Anna Mendieta's work in particular, so many people have seen themselves in various facets of her life and work that there's something that she's, that is attesting to the power of her art and her kind of, um, I don't know, her, the, the attraction that so many people have to it. Right. Yeah, that, that, that's so true that there's a, uh, a kind of a constant interest in that. Well, it's exciting talking about this and in, in your new book. Um, uh, before we go, I want to ask you one more question, which is, uh, what are you reading at the moment? Oh, okay. So I actually pulled out, and it kind of relates to Anamandieta in a way. I pulled out Alice Notley's Grave of Life, Grave of Light, excuse me, for the first time in a while, and in a long while, but she actually was at Iowa when Ana Mendieta was there. And a lot of the poems, and it's around the same time, and um, Alice Notley, I think, at least according to one of the poems, was working as a nude model for the art classes that Ana Mendieta was um, in. And so I kind of feel like it was, been, it was very strange to revisit that and see all of these details from Iowa in like the early, you know, 1970s that I felt like I'd spent so much time in through my dissertation. But, um, yeah, so Alice Notley, and I, I recently also read um, Saidiya Hartman's Lose Your Mother Again, which is am- amazing. Um, so those are, those are two. Montana, thank you so much for talking with me today. I want to wish you well on your on your project, and thanks again for your time and work. Thank you again. This is so delightful. I really appreciate it. Thanks again. You're listening to Yale Radio WYBC. This is Brainerd Carey with the lives of the artists, architects, curators, and more.